State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. In this episode, we have on Gigi Pollock. Gigi is a mom of three boys who has recently taken up rock climbing in an attempt to be cool enough to hang out with her kids and is always looking for ways to increase her dark chocolate intake. She is a health, exercise, and human performance professional, coach, and author in addition to being a self-confessed geek. Gigi holds a Master's of Science in Kinesiology and is a PhD candidate in human health and performance at the University of Chicago. This all makes her perfectly suited for her role as the Health and Human Performance Science Advisor for the Institute of Motion. Her PhD research looks at the unique effects of male and female physiology and how to optimize training for each of these groups. Our conversation is not only informative, but quite enlightening. It is a real shift from how our industry currently looks at training. But enough of my explanation. I'll let Gigi take it from here. See you on the other side. Welcome, Gigi, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Uh, glad to have you here. Um, I always love, I, I think I mentioned this off there, like I always love doing podcasts with people out West and you're in California and simply because, and I think most of, actually most of my podcast guests have been West Coasters oh. because when you typically want to do your podcast, it's, you know, usually midday for me. So I get time to wake up and get my body going, my brain going a little bit before I have to hop in and you guys have to do the bit of the early morning. Yeah. Um, I was actually supposed to be there this past July for the Idea mm -hmm. World Convention. I was supposed to be presenting, um, but I wasn't able to go. So all of my travel kind of uh, went out the window since we're not really flying. But um, so I hear you've been flying recently and you had a cool little trip. Um, I did. Yeah. What did you what did you end up doing? So my son, who's 21, he's finishing up university, but he's been working on his pilot's license and he's got, there are many levels. You get your um, single engine, then you get your multi-engine commercial. And then you, and then this was kind of extra. He finished his seaplane license, which, which are the planes can land on um, water. So yeah. did, you ever, did you ever watch that show? Well, maybe I'm aging myself. Uh, Fantasy Island. <laughs> it was an old show. And I, there was I never a guy watched it, no. You know, okay. And every time a seaplane would come, the guy would go, the plane, the plane, the plane, and it land on water into the island. Anyway, uh, um, so anyway, he finished out to celebrate uh, 
him. And then I just had a birthday. We nice. flew over the Grand Canyon. He flew me and his brothers over the Grand Canyon. So it was epic. It was like a fabulous way to see the Grand Canyon. And, you know, it's just an amazing piece of land. And yeah. it's amazing, you know, part of nature. But the funny thing about being in Arizona, this is where, you know, he is. And I'm, I'm at the hotel and I walk out. And on this truck is this like, I don't know, it's probably going to get bigger in my head. <laughs> it's like, a, you know, it just gets more grandiose. Years later it's, when you're telling the story. Yeah, it was it was 10 feet. Now it's like about 14 feet long, yeah. you know, giant cactus that yeah. I couldn't even bear hug. But it was very funny to see just on the flatbed of a truck. And you're like, only here you'd see something like that. So yeah. anyway, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, so I know, had you been to the Grand Canyon before you flew over it? No, so no, that, was that was your was first, first experience. Time. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty. I don't know. Have you ever been? Yeah, so I went. To- I went to Arizona. I had a friend whose parents had a, a place down in Scottsdale. So I went down. I actually went back when athletes performance with athletes performance. And I went there and Mm -hmm. I I worked there a bit. I worked with the Arizona State University football team for a bit. And then Mm -hmm. we took a trip up to, you know, the four and a half hour drive up to the Grand Canyon. And Mm -hmm. yeah, it was, it was breathtaking. Mm -hmm. But whenever you see the aerial shots of it, it's far different. Like you don't standing up close, you don't, it doesn't even, you don't even grasp the the size of yeah. what you're looking at and and the extent of it that it goes all the way you know to Nevada and you know like it's oh yeah it's uh yeah, it's, it's crazy. grandiose it's grandiose yeah. I mean we flew up to the border of Utah and we did did a pit stop in Sedona for lunch and you could see the Sedona Mountains which is you know beautiful but it's just grandiose and you know the Colorado River there's a horseshoe a mm-hmm. part of it and you wouldn't know that if you were just hiking it. But it was interesting to see the Colorado and the horseshoe um, shape of it uh, from up the top and getting as close to it as possible. You have to have a permit to fly really close to it. Yeah. Um, but it was very cool to see on a little um, on a little airplane. So yeah. that next time we're going to stop and actually take a tour and do a hike. Yeah. I think for this time, we're just going to take lay the land and, and do it again another time. So yeah, I think cool. we... We went in February, and so there was snow on the ground at that point. So it wasn't really mm-hmm. hiking weather. Um, like there was mm-hmm. ice on the ground, and all. So, um, but yeah, like even the nature up there, like there's deer all over the place, standing at the side of the road as you're kind of driving through and we're driving around. Um, you mentioned the the cactus on the back of the pickup, and that you couldn't bear hug it. Well, that's the first yeah. thing that I did when I got to Arizona is I walked up to a cactus and I gave it a bear hug because I'd never seen a cactus before outside of, you know, the small ones that you have, you know, in your, in your succulents garden or something like that. That's so funny. um, All right. So let's, let's get into uh, some of our our conversation about some, some content. And uh, can you give the listeners just a little bit of a background about who you are and what you, what you do currently? Okay, so currently I am the director of science for the Institute of Motion. Um, I've you know, worked in strength and conditioning and personal training for over 25 years. So I'm you know, dating myself, well, I guess just about 25 years now. And I still have a small handful of clients that I, that I serve. Um, and it, I like being that cook that's still in the kitchen, you know, not yeah. just making the recipes. And I really enjoy that and getting hands-on um, and feedback. Uh, from the mostly women that I serve. So 
Um, so I've been in the industry for a long time. I'm the director of science and I do a lot of um, research for the Institute of Motion. So anything they want to put out, they say, hey, Gage, we need to back this up with science. I'm like, here, got it. You know, <laughs> let, me, let me find some stuff for you. Let me find both sides of the you know, equation yeah. because it, science is interesting. You have to look at both sides and then you have to actually look at the study and how they design it and why mm -hmm. they're finding what they're finding, right? So yeah. you have to dissect it before you go, well, they found this. Well, okay, well, how did it and why did they find that? Well, okay, yeah. well, there's a reason, right? The, the study design really makes a difference too. So um, so that's a lot of what I do. Um, and I've worked with young adolescent athletes for a long time and, you know, women in, you know, various ages. Um, so that's actually what led to this research back when I was in my early 20s. And I'm like, well, there's something going on in training with women. And there's something that I feel, why is this going on? Mm -hmm. And it led me to a PhD study. I've also worked with men. Um, and so when I look at gender specific training considerations, it's very interesting how we all kind of train the same, you know, whether it's weight loss you know, for the general population or just keeping physically active, I think it's great to have a goal, um, whether it's an athlete that, you know, you're working with them in their uh, preseason and yeah. then they have their in season and then you work a little bit with them in season. And then you look at that, how we train female specific athletes based on a set you know, mesocycle or microcycle, right? Mm -hmm. And then you look at what's going on and you realize, well, Last week, you were a lot stronger. You know, mm -hmm. you were able to do your hang cleans completely okay. And this year, this time you're like, you know, I can only do four reps instead of six reps maximum. Yeah. You're like, well, that's okay. And you kind of give them that permission. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's um, kind of where I come from, working with young athletes and women of all ages. Um, and I've trained a lot of um, endurance athletes. Okay. Mostly recreational, you know, um, whether they've been doing it for a while and they just need to kind of, you know, for their own personal reasons, want to, you know, cut a few minutes off their time or they're just beginning to get into endurance, um, at, you know, competitions. I've worked with a lot of women that way and a lot of women postpartum, you know, I have my own kids. So trying to fit in work, I'm like, great, I could do baby, baby boot camps. Yeah. So it was a great way to work with, with women and still, you know, um, have my kids around. So yeah. Great. Yeah. I like, uh, I like the fact that when you were talking about your role as, uh, basically the doing all the research for, for IOM and when they need to, um, when they're trying to back everything up with science is like, not just going with confirmation bias, like, okay, let's just search things that are going to back up whatever I'm saying. Let's look mm -hmm. at both sides. Look at, let's look at, you know, how the studies were actually structured and, and, you know, the number of people that they had involved in it. So how many subjects did they have? What was the population of those subjects? Um, so like, I love to hear that because you, you find a lot when, when you see people who reference research to back up a point. Oftentimes, mm -hmm. like even if you look at like, don't stretch before, you know, doing anything, like don't do any static stretching before you do anything, do it all after, because it's only mm -hmm. going to bring down your performance. But when you look mm -hmm. at a lot of all those studies that really haven't really been replicated, it's mm -hmm. like yeah. you stretch for six minutes and then you go and do your exercise right after. It's like, well, who does yeah. that? Right? Yeah, like exactly. nobody actually does that. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah. So it's, it's really interesting. So when you're, I just want to talk about that a little bit, because um, I think that's a, 
something that a lot of PTs don't do. They hear somebody speak, they go to a course that provides mm-hmm. a little bit of research here and there, um, mm-hmm. but they don't necessarily dive into the research themselves and look. One, because they probably mm-hmm. don't have the time, but I think the other is they don't know where to look and and how to look at the research itself. So can you just break down a little bit more about how you break down research? When you go and you find a research study, how you walk through that actual single study to figure mm-hmm. out if it's something that you could actually utilize or that it's actually structured in the way that you like it. Yeah. Um, so basically I look at, well, the population, you know, you'll see the population and, you know, some based on there's a power reading that they do for studies. And that tells you about what the minimum requirement is for that study. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes you look at some studies, you're like, there's only six people, but that's probably all they needed. Um, even of course, the larger the population, the better the study, right? Cause then yeah. you just have a, a more solid, um, study. I really look at the methodology and they, I look at the scientific controls, so, for example, when I look at the um, female considerations, I look at that and I look at the menstrual cycle. I look at it and I go, well, how did they break out the cycles? Because there's four and five phases, I'm going to say, because there's the menstrual cycle, menstruation, mm-hmm. which is the first phase, the late follicular, and then there's like ovulation in between. We'll talk about that. And then there's, um, there's early luteal and late luteal. So the hormones are different every week and the increases of each uh, estrogen and progesterone, which are the hormones I'm going to mainly talk about. There's testosterone in there, but mainly I'm going to talk about the estrogen and progesterone hormones. When you look at the ratios of that, they're different on each phase of the the menstrual cycle. Mm -hmm. A lot of studies will lump some follicular and luteal, and that's fine. But then they're not really looking at the ratios because there's different signaling based on the ratios of the of the hormones, right? So I think with that respect, I think science just needs to get a little bit better. Yeah. You know, science is an evolution, right? People find something, they get their own ideas, and then they test those ideas, and then you know, somebody else's retest or that same scientist retests. So I think it's important to look at how they're they're kind of mapping out the menstrual cycle. And then how they're finding those results. Now, there are a lot of different studies um, on substrate utilization. There's a lot of studies on muscle contraction, muscle activation. I'm going to say, I'm saying a lot, but there really isn't, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, motor unit recruitment, there's, there's a few studies on that. And the delineation of the menstrual cycle is completely different. So the findings are on both sides of the coin. Um, which is good science, right? Because you want to see both. Um, and then also on inflammatory cytokines. So there's both sides of the equation. And then, uh, and then energy levels follow that. Um, so there's a lot that needs to be improved. And so I really look at the methodology of, you know, what did they control diet? Did they, you know, did they have, how long was the study? Was it, you know, for for the menstrual cycle, was it just one cycle? Whereas, you know, if you do it for two or three cycles, which is so difficult for, for depending on your population, there are seasonal variations in women. So what you feel in the summer is completely what you feel, you know, it's different in the winter. So it's a very, it's a very um, slippery slope. It's very sticky in how you find that. So I, the methodology is really important to me when I look at the study. 
Yeah. Um, because there's a, there's even within scientists, when you're making a study, I really want to find this. There's, you're, there's still a lot of bias as to yeah. what they want to confirm. So yeah. it's important to look at, at both sides, I think, and the methodology for sure. No. Yeah. Nobody ever likes when they're doing research to do a research study and have a whole bunch of findings that disprove whatever they thought. Like that's not a, that's not a good paper to write. Like that's a, it's like, wow, I was totally <laughs> off on that hypothesis. So yeah. Exactly. And of course we're doing, uh, you probably want to edit this out, but we're, we're doing a Viper study with UCLA. Right. And so okay. I'm, I'm working, I'm working with UCLA. So that's kind of one of my roles. I work on a studies, I don't add bias, but I consult with them, right? So they're running the studies. I consult on certain protocols for Viper Pro, and then they test it out. But I'm like, okay, I this is what this is our hypothesis. Yeah, <laughs> I, I want to prove it. I really do, but I'm glad you're doing a study because then, yeah, <laughs> then it won't get me out. Yeah, so it's it's very um very funny that way. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, I love that. So when you're looking through, and I, I believe I asked this to both uh, Michelle and Brandon when they were on the the podcast. Uh, actually, I may have asked Greg Dumanoir the exact same question as well. So when you look at a, like research, so when you're doing some research for IOM as an example, and mm-hmm. um, you're asked to kind of like the idea is brought to you first, and then you're asked to kind of go into the literature and try to find out if that theory, that hypothesis is the way that they're mm-hmm. they're saying it is. Um, so like taking an anecdotal idea and trying to put then some research backing to it. Mm-hmm. How much like when you're when you're going, because there are some topics that have a whole lot of research, like you could, you could spend hours and hours and hours and hours and weeks and months reading all of the research studies on one particular topic. So when you're going through, how do you determine, um, okay, this is enough evidence for us to then state that this is like confirm our hypothesis or to, to debunk or disprove the hypothesis that we had and go at it from a different angle. How many research studies or how long does that take you? Oh gosh, it takes me a while, uh, but I've gotten really good at searching and, um, and reading through. So I, you know, always look at the abstract. Okay. I look at the abstract. Then I look at the methodology mm-hmm. and then I, I read, there's a discussion portion. Yep. So I read the discussion portion, which, which is great because it tells you, well, this, this study found this and that study found that and this study. So there's a lot um, that I look through when I'm looking at the research that, you know, they, that they're trying to back up, right? Yeah. So I don't want any bias on it, um, but I want enough good research behind it to to prove their point. Yeah. Uh, what I don't want to find is bad research to prove their point, you know. Mm. So and then so that's really what I try to do. And you know, I you need at least about four or five good good research articles to back up what they say. Yeah. Um, so that's, I, I look at it that. And then also, um, and sometimes they come up with ideas and sometimes I'm reading, I come through with my stuff and I save a lot of stuff. Thank God there's a lot online now yeah. through online libraries. So I have a folder and then I put a placeholder for the, hey, we, we need to look at this as one of our protocols because this sounds really cool. Yeah. But let me look, let me look, dive deeper into this before we say, hey, this is a really cool thing to do. Yeah. You know, um, you know, there's there's the hot, cold, you know, baths that you have to do for recovery. And there's other things like, well, do um, do those hyperized guns really work and how deep, you know, there's not a lot of research out there. Mm-hmm. 
we all know it feels good. Yeah. <laughs> just like foam rolling. There wasn't a lot of research for a long time. And then there's all the research that's coming out now on that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. So yeah. Uh, about four to five articles. Yeah. I love it. So how <laughs> you can, you can have a short answer for this. So to find those five articles, <laughs> how many articles do you read? <laughs> well, there's a way to kind of cheat. Yeah. <laughs> I hate to say. <laughs> So you look at their references yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? and you look, not that there's bias, but you look at that, you know, and there's yeah. a lot of references that you can find based on that. Um, the reference list is awesome for finding other articles and at least other things. And I don't know if you've been on ResearchGate. And I have been like, I use, uh, I use a lot of PubMed um, mm -hmm. to do a lot of my research for my own courses, my own presentations. Um, oh, yeah. That's typically what I use, but I have been on ResearchGate. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, the only thing about PubMed and ResearchGate is that not all articles are peer reviewed. Mm -hmm. So what I like to do is use peer reviewed articles um, because then there's a lot of scrutiny with it. And then yeah. even then within that scrutiny, you like to scrutinize, right? I like to scrutinize what is really going to work. Um, I love PubMed and I love ResearchGate because there are a lot of brand new ideas mm -hmm. um, and things that have been published, but I think you just need to dissect it yourself and see if it is a good resource. But ResearchGate has a great um, resource, and there's a lot of researchers on there who um, who put out a lot of stuff that have already been published, not necessarily peer reviewed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Um, yeah. That's yeah, and that's definitely like going through research, evaluating the quality of not only the individuals writing it, but the journal, and then looking mm -hmm. at the introduction, the methodology, the conclusions that they've drawn, looking at the references. Like that's a skill that takes time to develop. It's not just something that you instantly, okay, well, so they told me how to do this. So read this article. Yep. Looks good. Let's go with it. Right. Like it's something that takes time reading a lot of articles and going through, like we've both been trained in that, like you're doing your PhD. I, mm -hmm. I did my master research masters. So we've both done mm -hmm. a read a lot of articles before. Yeah. So it's, yeah. um, uh, definitely a skill that takes time to develop. Um, oh, definitely. But, um, yeah. And even, even when I did my master's, cause I did my master's also. And, um, it's one of those that they, it's nice that there are certain courses that tell you, well, you know, let's go ahead and break it down. Look at the research. Tell me about the population. Tell me about the methodology. And then within that process, you realize they're just teaching me how to look at research, which is mm -hmm. awesome because there's a lot that's taken at face value. And for our industry, you mentioned, you know, there's a lot of trainers who don't dive into the research themselves, you know, because they're working eight to 10 hour days, you know, servicing clients. And you know what it feels like when you've had an eight to 10 hour day, you're like, you are done and you just need some alone time and you know, you love what you do, but you need a little bit of, you know, a little bit of a separation for a little bit. So diving into research just might not be the thing to do. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, you can look at an article and you're like, well, that sounds good, you know, yeah. because you just don't have a lot of time. So I think there's a lot of sound bites in our industry that happen. I think the responsibility is, and I think what we try to do at the Institute of Motion is, get those sound bites and put them into context, Yeah, you know, because it's just not a sound bite like the keto diet. Oh, it's great. I lost all this weight. Well, let's put it into context. Yeah. What are you using it for? Um, and, you know, are you going to use it short term or long term? So yeah. it's, it's one of those things that you kind of want to look at. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
And I know, yeah, IOM definitely does this. Uh, I know we do this a lot. Uh, DTS here in Toronto does this a lot as well. And it's, it's finding a trusted provider of education, right? Not mm-hmm. just taking everybody's word for it. You know, oh, yeah. everything you read on Instagram or Facebook or, or wherever Gosh. else the kids these days are on social media, but, mm-hmm. uh, but looking at and finding people who actually do the research for you and then apply mm-hmm. it, as you said, and mm-hmm. put it into context for you, right. Mm-hmm. Enable you to kind of figure things out on your own. And, and I always like, so like, like I know we, we have the system, IOM's got their own system um, that we use when we're treating clients, when we're training clients and we walk through this. And so all the teaching that we do uses that system. Now you can plug and play with different things. If you have a different assessment, you can go and use a different assessment. Or if you have different mobility exercises or, or soft tissue release techniques that you want to use, that's fine. If you're working with a manual therapist or not, like there's a whole bunch of different ways you can do things but understanding mm-hmm. that there's a system behind it that you use to get a, a consistent result that you can feel confident about when you start programming for that client, right? I think mm-hmm. that's really what people are, are looking for. So with that, let's talk about some of these training considerations for the female population, because I, I think, as you said, that's been a, when you look at things like periodization or training techniques, a lot of what we have done has been structured around the male population. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing a, a, a big movement towards more females being involved in the fitness industry, uh, being mm-hmm. leaders in the fitness industry, being managers, being high level trainers, being educators such as yourself. And so we're seeing a big movement towards that, which is fantastic. But that also then mm-hmm. means that there is a shift now in looking at training a little bit differently when it comes to the difference between the two populations. So mm-hmm. can we just get into a little bit of the science behind the the major differences between male clients and female clients when it comes to the actual physiology of what's going on underneath and then how that then affects the training that we do and then we'll we'll get into programming a little bit later okay great so i love this question and i'm actually you know one of your questions like what are you working on like well there's a book i'm writing on and it's like you know equal but different you know Mm -hmm. it's it's different like we you know, we're, men aren't better than women and women better than men. And um, I hate, I'm not into, when I hear male bashing, I go, oh, you know, <laughs> it's like, I have three times. I love them. They're good. Boy, you know what I mean? Yeah. So um, anyway, so men have testosterone. They have yeah. 20 times more testosterone than women and manufacture it 20 times faster than women. So if you think about that, that's why they separate men and women's sports because testosterone is anabolic. It makes you bigger, stronger, and faster. Um, It would be unfair. Women have about one, you know, one twentieth of the testosterone as men. Mm -hmm. And so when you hear that, and then you hear about women afraid of lifting weights because afraid of bulking up, I just kind of, gosh, you know, it takes, there's, you know, I don't want to say laugh. It takes education out there to, to let women know that, you know, for the general population, you won't get as big and bulky as a man, right? Um, Women have, on the other hand, have estrogen. So testosterone and estrogen, they're both great things. Um, Estrogen is a highly um, anti-inflammatory, you know, hormone. Uh, Men have estrogen also, but about one trillionth of a gram. And men need it for like sperm um, formation. And they also need it for, you know, for skin and your 
smooth muscle cells. And mm-hmm. um, so it is necessary, but there isn't a lot in men. Yeah. Women, you know, we're primarily made of estrogen. And that's there. there's a reason women have softer skin uh, because yeah. we have estrogen is important for collagen formation. Um, so if you think about that, women have more estrogen. Hmm. There's a reason women have less heart attacks than men because your endothelial cells, the cells within your like intestines and your veins function better because of estrogen. Um, it's a great promoter of um, activating satellite cells. So there are a lot of studies that say that because estrogen is a big um, signaler for satellite cells to come and activate and, you know, uh, work with muscle-induced damage, um, you know, it's, anyway, I just lost my train of thought there. But uh, oh, <laughs> I'm like, what was I saying? But it's, you know, there's a reason women recover a lot faster during certain times than men because of estrogen. Um, yeah, that's a, the huge difference between men and women is their hormones. And within women, there's an estrogen progesterone um, profile, which is what undulates during a menstrual cycle. There are other hormones that undulate, but I just to keep things simple, I think those are the two things that you wanna look at when you're looking at programming. Um, and a little bit of testosterone, so yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that the idea that you have increased collagen production when we're talking about something like recovery and repair of tissue um, and the creation of, you know, new fascial tissue, the creation of, or the repair of injury, Mm -hmm. collagen production is, is a big piece from those fibroblasts being able to lay down new collagen. So um, yeah, I like like that, uh, enables people to start connecting dots about why things happen the way that they do. And it's the same thing, right? Like I always uh, used to think that, you know, well, women have fewer heart attacks because they're not under as much stress. Where, <laughs> but like, this is old me, this is not new me. Um, I know, I know. <laughs> but obviously okay. that's not the case because it's a, like women are specifically today are on a, in a different types of stress. Um, they are involved in the workplace just like men are. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a lot of, you know, high power women in the air and in, in the world, and mm-hmm. they have uh, a lot of them have children and that's a stress mm-hmm. and there's a whole bunch mm-hmm. of other things. So uh, being able to understand that one of the reasons why they have less is because of the role that estrogen plays in the the repair of cells and and um, and allowing repair of tissues is, is a big piece. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that. So when it comes to the fluctuations in estrogen and progesterone within a, a female's menstrual cycle, because we'll just kind of stick in this area. We'll talk about, uh, you know, uh, menopause a little bit later and how that then okay. affects things. But mm-hmm. when we're just talking about the, the fluctuations throughout a training or throughout that, you know, 28 day cycle, Mm-hmm. What does that look like? And then how does the, do those fluctuations, what will you see? And then how will that affect the training that you do with them? Okay. So let me go through the four cycles and I'm going to say five because um, ovulation falls in between the two phases, two, the two major phases. Okay. Um, there's a follicular and luteal phase. So I'm going to break down day one is considered when a woman starts to bleed. Okay. That's early follicular, that's menstruation. And it's typically, I'm going to talk about bio-individuality because every cycle is different for a woman. 
Um, typically, it's about four to seven days. So that's the early follicular phase. Now, within that early follicular phase, there are the lowest levels of hormones during that whole entire cycle. So estrogen and progesterone are both low and testosterone is low too. Now, because estrogen is low and progesterone is, is low, what happens is, let's look at what's going on. The woman is bleeding. Mm-hmm. Now, if a woman is bleeding, it depends on heavy, medium, or, or light. Yeah. The heavier the bleeding, the more stress to the physiology, because it's a stress physiology. You're losing blood. Mm-hmm. When you're losing blood, a woman, if she's not eating properly, she could be losing a lot of iron. Now, if you know about iron, it's carried in hemoglobin. Yeah. Hemoglobin carries oxygen to your tissues, right? So you think about it. You've got less oxygen. A workout's going to feel harder. With that, your energy levels are down. Um, estrogen affects sleep also. And so it actually um, has a huge impact on the brain. And so if you're not sleeping well, guess what's going to happen? Your energy levels, that's like a, it's kind of a domino effect, right? Uh, yeah. You're, yeah, you're going to feel really tired. Maybe you're not sleeping as well. Um, inflammatory cytokines are generally higher during then um, because of the low estrogen levels. Um, there's, uh, have you heard of hormone relaxin? It relaxes yep. the joint. There's yep. some relaxing that's, that's kind of more activated because of the low estrogen um, amounts. Um, and then your metabolism, you're less, there's a lot of, there, you aren't very, uh, there's less insulin sensitivity. Mm. So if you notice like your carbs aren't using, you know, you're going to have more sugar in the blood. Um, so that's, what's happening during that first phase, the early follicular menstruation phase. Week two is called the late follicular phase. Now you can lump sum up that first week into the follicular phase. This is what a lot of studies do, but yeah. week two is late follicular. And I like to say late follicular. You're less bleed. You're not bleeding. Your um, physiology starts to normalize. Energy levels increase because you're not bleeding. You're not losing iron. You know, um, your estrogen starts to increase at a rapid rate and progesterone starts to increase, but estrogen increases at a steeper rate compared to progesterone. So your ratio of estrogen to progesterone is generally higher during this time. Um, I said, energy levels are great. Inflammatory cytokines start to normalize. Um, Insulin sensitivity improves. Joint muscle joint structure improves. Recovery is better because there's more estrogen, right? I said, it's a huge promoter of recovery for, for collagen, but also it's been found to be, some studies show that it's been a muscle membrane stabilizer Hmm. and it actually controls the way your muscles release calcium from the sarcoplasmic reticulums for that actin myosin formation. So if you think about that and and I look at muscle studies, well, that completely makes sense. I don't want to throw any bias into it, but if it's controlling the way calcium is being released and regulated for that, you know, chain formation, well, it makes sense why your workouts feel better. If you look at anecdotal evidence, like women are ready to, to rock and roll during Mm -hmm. that time. And then within that, you know, it's days eight through 15 is usually, so that's that late follicular ovulation falls, depending on the woman, 13 to 16 days, 13 to 16. 
And within that, you know, there's a certain hormones that spike for ovulation to happen and testosterone spikes then. So if you look at those 13 to 16, I like hit it hard during those days yeah. because muscle recovery is, you know, go heavy, you know, go intense because your recovery structure is better, mm. you know, internally, your physiology is able to handle those, those workouts. Um, of course, inflammatory cytokines depends on your workout. If you have high workout, but you've got, you know, it promotes inflammatory cytokines for a reason, you know, mm. but it's able to handle that and, and level it off so that you have better recovery. Um, gosh, um, energy metabolism is better. Insulin sensitivity is awesome. Eat your carbs then, you know, for, um, for your workouts. And then, so that is an awesome phase. So, you know, you got to look at that as a huge advantage. Those days, you know, eight through 16, those are awesome days to work out. And because you're coming off of, um, you know, kind of, I'm going to say, a more stress physiology. I like to look at that week as a progressive training overload, kind of use that for mm -hmm. a few days and then get them to, to those peak workloads. Right. Um, the early luteal phase is still a great time. And that's about days, you know, 16 to 21. And this is where it can be a slippery slope. This is where it's great for part of this because you're still got that ovulation period Estrogen is still high, but what happens to progesterone is starts increasing at a steeper rate where estrogen starts to level off. So your the ratio of estrogen to progesterone gets a little smaller. Mm -hmm. And that's where you go, well, wait a minute. And it depends on the woman, right? So um, if, if her estrogen profile goes where it's actually, you know, flattening off and estrogen is, uh, progesterone is spiking up then you're going to see some differences in how that woman feels anecdotally. And then physiologically, her, her workouts may not be better handled if they're kind of intense. Yeah. Um, this is where you, you still keep it intense, but you're like, okay, Monta, how's she feeling? What's she doing? You know, so you, you know, as a, as a coach, you, you could see, you look at their faces and you know what's going on, right? Yeah. Um, you could see what they're thinking about their workouts as you get to know your athlete or your client, right? So it's a, it's very intuitive sometimes. Um, yeah. And so, you know, it's still a great time. Inflammatory cytokines may start to increase. Um, insulin sensitivity may start to, um, sorry, I just lost you there. Insulin sensitivity may start to, to decrease there. Um, and so that's where you want to start kind of monitoring towards day 21 is like, you know, depending on how some women experience the premenstrual syndrome a lot earlier, yeah. versus some, some just a couple days before, uh, which is what day 21 to 28 is. It's what I hate to say it. Like, you know, it's a lot of, for both men and women are like, Oh my God, I'm PMSing. And, <laughs> and for, and I, and, and I feel for guys because, you know, I have three sons and my, and this is a fun thing. They're like, they would get, they would go, mom, are you PMSing? I go, okay, I'm a little grumpy. <laughs> so yeah. they just kind of know, they're like, mom is on me about cleaning my room this week. <laughs> you know, so I kind of feel, but it, it's, I laugh about it, but it's actually a good thing. It teaches a woman to slow down, to take care of her body. This is where, you know, a lot, if you have a lot of disease, like, um, colitis or type two diabetes, 
this starts when this is when things are worse. If you're um, if you have depression, mm-hmm. um, this is where these things surface around this time of the um, of the month because um, you have higher inflammatory cytokines. And if you hear women, they go, "My skin is awful during this time. I'm not sleeping. I just feel achy. I'm like, I feel weak." Well, if you look at what's happening physiologically, um, progesterone spikes. It's about 15 times greater than estrogen. And what progesterone does is it mitigates the receptors of estrogen in your muscle. So there are estrogen receptors that have been found in muscle and both rats. You know, these are a lot of rat studies, uh, but also in, in women. So they're estrogen receptors. And if you know testosterone and cortisol, they're like a yin and yang. Yeah. Estrogen and progesterone are about the same, yin and yang. You need them both, but certain ratios kind of cancel the other one out. So when you have more progesterone, those receptor, they, they block those muscle receptors to estrogen in those cells. And so recovery is a little bit less um, promoted and a woman may feel achier. And some women, you know, I don't feel this, but some women feel like, God, I, I feel like I'm coming down to cold. I'm achy. Maybe I'm coming out of flu without, if, you know, especially if they don't track their cycles. Yeah. And I highly recommend that. Um, women feel like a little bit fatty. I, I don't know if your wife says I feel fluffy. I feel like bloated. Um, but it's progesterone kind of promotes more um, lipolysis. Yeah. It degrades protein. Um, a lot of studies have found um, a lot of amino acids in, pro- in uh, urine in women. Um, usually that's where it goes, right? If you have too much yeah. protein, it goes to urine. So, you know, they found a lot of that um, in women. So you, you wonder why a woman feels the way she does. And you look at some of the science, you're like, well, that, that makes sense. You know, when you feel softer, there's a lot more uh, protein degradation. So, you know, what a woman wants to do is actually, you know, still work out and still lift your weights, but maybe have a little more recovery in it, maybe not as intense. Um, and maybe, um, you know, do things that promote more anti-inflammatory cytokines. Mm-hmm. Um, so more and, and changing the environment of, of where they're working out. So maybe this is where you still want to go intense. Maybe you make it an aquatic based kind of strength workout because there's no eccentric damage there during, mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's no eccentric loaded water. So those are the things that you can kind of modulate for your client based on what's happening to the physiology. Um, it's a really hard time for some women, um, high school girls, you know, they get cramps and they don't know how to communicate that. And, you know, I've, I remember my college roommate, she was an athlete, she was a gymnast and she would have to put a water bottle on, you know, on her belly because she had such cramps. It was debilitating. And then some women get migraines and headaches, um, because of the, the lower amounts of estrogen, the higher amounts of progesterone that inflow, um, that, that um, impact inflammatory cytokines um, mm-hmm. and impact just the way you, your, your fat cells are just kind of a little, they, you know, you have a certain amount of fat cells and you can't, you either shrink them, right. Or you get them smaller. That's how you kind of uh, work w- with how much fat you have. Yeah. Um, so they just engorge a little bit more during that time based yeah. on what's going hormonally. So that's basically what's going on with those four phases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to put five with a, with a little asterisk with ovulation. Yeah. Um, anyway, so. Yeah. All the things men don't know about. 
Yeah, me. well, but you know what? I don't blame you. It's like, it's not your body. I'm sure there's stuff about men that, you know, that we don't know about. I've worked with male clients um, and, you know, that's something for a little bit later. It's called a uh, androgen deficiency, you know, like testosterone goes down in men. And there's certain things, you know, whether you're, um, there's androgen deficiency, what happens with men, I mean, this is a psycho. And then there's large prostate, which is what happens to men later on in life. And the signaling is different, right? So you can program for that to kind of help that situation um, without having to take hormones also. So I've worked with a, a, a couple um, middle-aged men on that aspect. Um, and it's, it takes into looking to the science, you know, Hey, this is what's going on. I'm like, you know, secretly, you know, you know privately, I'm like, got it. Let's work with what you've got going on yeah. so that you don't have to take hormone, you know, and have all the other side effects. The exogenous hormones are a lot different on the yeah. body than endogenous. So, and, you know, endogenous is what you manufacture within your body. And then exogenous is if you take a pill or like a, a cream or a shot or something for, for the hormones. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you said that's a topic for later. Let's just dive into it now because uh, we can hop back <laughs> into where we were going um, in a little bit because yeah, it's something I'm actually really interested in. So <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about that because yeah, because you do see that in, in men a lot, right? Like, um, you know, peaks of testosterone, like we talk about different times a day. Like I was talking mm -hmm. with uh, Brennan Marcello about kind of the peak, you have a peak of testosterone in the morning, but also cortisol mm -hmm. is high. And then mm -hmm. you have another peak around like 4 PM or so is your next peak. Mm -hmm. So, um, choosing your training. And that's why people feel like sometimes when they do an early morning workout, they feel, Oh, like they don't feel yeah. great, but if they do one in the afternoon, they feel fantastic. Now, obviously mm -hmm. assuming that the time that you have available to you, what else you have going mm -hmm. on, the stresses throughout your day, work, kids, yeah. school, whatever it is, mm -hmm. right. All of that. But that's, um, like I, I know for me when I was in university and I was first getting into, into like serious training, we mm -hmm. like I it was almost and it wasn't something that I thought about but most days it was early afternoon when I would go to the mm -hmm. gym it was never late yeah. at night and it was yeah. never early in the morning like for sure yeah. never early in the morning so <laughs> um but that kind of seemed like to be like why is it always so busy at four o'clock and it's all these guys yeah. in like yeah. and it's almost like this thing that you you don't know but you feel and the body's very smart as you said right and so like it's yeah. just it finds it's your way in because you feel better at this time. You don't know why, but you feel better. Yeah. Yep. Um, mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit more about uh, androgen deficiency and how we can train to combat that when we do start mm -hmm. to see a dip in testosterone as we start to get a little bit older or as cortisol is coming in and we're having that, as you said, that yin yang, that push and pull between those two mm -hmm. um, hormones. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Well, I think when, you know, they look at the, the cortisol testosterone ratio, but for men, when it starts to decrease, it's, it's, you know, there, it's a, it's a, it's a slippery slope because you want to get a little bit of endurance, you know, not too much that it drives up their cortisol levels. Right. But enough for really good endothelial function so that they have good blood flow. And then you actually want to do a lot of strength training. You know, I want to say like, highly anabolic stuff, whether we call it hiss, you know, high intensity steady state or the hit workout yeah. um, or the high volume 
muscle training, you know, where you do low reps and, you know, you do five sets of like, you know, four to six, you know, rep maximum to really promote a lot of testosterone. Um, the problem is when you, the body's really smart. So I like to promote more endogenous um, hormones because when you start to take exogenous hormones and there's still kind of inconclusive evidence, your body is smart and it goes, well, I'm getting too much of this. I'm going to stop producing my own, yeah. right? So if you can teach your adrenal glands to manufacture it, you know, then you're, it's a win situation. And hopefully mm -hmm. you can combat the need for exogenous hormones. So there's a lot to do with modulating the training. It's titrating it properly so that they, they're still highly anabolic, but you don't want it to be so anabolic for someone who's got, you know, androgen deficiency they still need that blood flow so maybe it's instead of like a you know you don't want them to run like a 10k but maybe they just do a three mile run or a three mile you know a three mile walk to promote some blood flow enough enough um enough um you know steady state type um um functioning for for their muscles right because yeah. they you want density in their um in their mitochondria I'm like i'm blanking out now <laughs> you want good mitochondria right so that yeah. promotes a lot of good mitochondria a lot of you know angiogenesis so you get a lot of blood uh blood vessels formations and so um you want to do that so i think going the very highly anabolic route and it's it's tough to, for men who are ha starting to have Adam deficiency, right? Mm -hmm. Because a lot of them are probably, you know, they've been working, they're like in an office. Um, and so you can't go as hard and as heavy as they would if they were 25 and, you know, still in college, right? So it's promoting that highly anabolic type work and having enough recovery so they don't injure themselves because yeah. testosterone is still a promoter of, you know, um, of, um, I'm blanking out. Um, I think I need water. That's what I need. Um, it's still a, a promoter or of um, you know uh, muscle you know protein synthesis, and so you want them to be able to heal and still yeah. uh, go hard. So it's it's a tough for you know those are in their you know middle ages who have that. So I worked with a client, and we did a lot of you know you know his goal was to get more muscle mass, and mm -hmm. we're finding like, you know, you're eating right, you're, you're doing the, you know, you're eating enough protein, we're working out what is going on here. So we go to, you know, we're going to his doctor. And he says, well, you know, like, looks like my testosterone levels are low. So I said, Okay, let's change it a little bit. And then let's do a little bit more anabolic work, you know, during certain times promoting more healing. So you know, like the dip, typical bodybuilding scheme, which is what his goal was, wasn't going to work for him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Because even if it promotes that, he still needs to get, you know, blood flow going um, through his system. So just doing that wasn't going to work for him. Yeah. Um, and then you've got the opposite where you have um, um, increased, um, oh God, I'm blanking out again. <laughs> um, it's one of those, it's one of those times, um, you know, um, enlarged prostate, which is yeah. the opposite. So you have more testosterone signaling. So mm -hmm. what you want to promote is a little bit more cortisol in their system with endurance activities. And, you know, you think about 
your endurance athletes who have a lot of cortisol in their system. So there, you know, there's a huge finding that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going back to, um, the atom. Um, so a lot of, um, athletes who do long endurance events, I'm talking about ultra marathons or, or marathons. I'm not talking about like a typical 10 K they have a lot of, you know, atom deficiency because there's a lot of cortisol going on in their system. So they need to dial it back. Whereas, you know, someone who might just be a heavy weightlifter all their life, you know, they start seeing a large prostate because they're lifting too much or highly anabolic. So, okay. In their middle ages, we'll, we'll, let's dial it down. Let's promote more cardio into your system. Mm-hmm. So that way you, know, you don't lose your gains. You still have your goal because you want to respect what they want. You know, yeah. everyone is, but you still want to promote health. So this is where we go. Well, health, health and fitness just don't, you know, equate. Yeah. So, uh, I yeah. hope that answers your question. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think when you, and this is, I think the hard part for a lot of people is you have um, an individual who comes in, a a male who comes in, and as you said, their goal is to put on muscle mass Mm -hmm. and you're like, okay. And you know, you evaluate their food, you value, you do all your movement evaluation, your assessment, you're looking at them, you're like, okay, so everything should be okay. We should be able to do that. And we haven't done a blood test, Mm-hmm. Uh, but you don't see the result, and so the question is always: Well, are you doing the right thing? It just hasn't been long enough. Are you doing the wrong thing, and you need to change it, or are you mm-hmm. doing the right thing just at the wrong time, and you have to actually change the timing of everything? Right? Like physiologically, mm-hmm. and I don't think a lot of people look inside, uh, mm-hmm. you know, so to speak, in trying yeah. to figure out why something isn't happening. They think it's their programming. Mm-hmm. They think it's this. They think it's that. Where it actually might be the physiology causing some adverse reaction. So you can have somebody mm-hmm. who eats really well, who trains and they're still gaining body fat. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And it could be because cortisol is super high. And like we know cortisol in a short period of time is really good. And, you know, you want to mm-hmm. see fluctuations and you want to see, yeah. you know, how your body actually mobilizes fat with cortisol. But if it's a long-term mm-hmm. thing, your body gets into that stress state, it starts storing body fat. So even though yeah. you're doing a whole bunch of things, And this is where I think that fine line comes because you start having people who want to put on muscle mass. And so they think, okay, go hard, go, you know, beast mode, whatever they think. And it's like, just go hard, hard, hard. When really they're, they're pushing up testosterone a little bit, but cortisol is going up way faster because they're not giving themselves enough recovery. They're not training properly for that, that situation. And Mm -hmm it's always that fine line. And then when you look at testosterone as well, testosterone is kind of that motivator, right? Like people who have high testosterone are far more, have a a far bigger desire to be in the gym, like from a male perspective. And then once testosterone starts to leave, you stop having that desire. Now it could Mm -hmm. be because the motivation is gone because maybe you're married now, you have a career, time isn't there, right? Um, But you see that as well. And I think that that's the hard part is having somebody who knows they need to go to the gym and they want to be healthier. And we know we got to put on some muscle mass and lose some body fat, but they aren't willing to kind of dial it back and kind of take the small little steps in. They want to dump, jump right into that deep end. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think having that understanding about what's actually going on and how to train those people with regards to, as you said, anabolic training and uh, some endurance, you have blood flow and then some strength side. Like I was already under the impression that it wouldn't be anabolic training because anabolic training now, whether it is hiss or hit uh, is a conversation that we've had on a different podcast, but um, 
that for me is something that I see as very, very high stress, right? And so mm-hmm. the body oh, yeah. is going to respond in a way that it's going to increase cortisol. And so when we're looking at mm-hmm. increasing testosterone, I didn't think that that was something that we would do, but um, mm-hmm. I have been wrong think, before. And so, yeah, well, you know, I think we all have been wrong. We've been, we've been like, oh my God, would I do that for that person? Oh, I was, you know, when I looked at my, uh, you know, uh, my, my client who has Adam, I thought, oh God, I thought I was doing, you know, the right thing. And I think we've all made that mistake. And you're like, okay, well, let's, I am glad that I've looked at certain things and, you know, and, you know, it's always nice to know, like, I, I'm a person like, I don't care if I'm wrong, you know, let me just learn from this and let me just like move forward and like, let me get you better to where you need to go. Right. Yeah. So, um, I think we've, we've done that a lot. Um, I think it's, it's tough for a person who has a goal, you know, I've, had so many times I'm going to say women are like hey you know new client hey can I come to you I'm going to have a trip and I want to lose you know this much weight I'm like okay great what's your trip two weeks two weeks well sorry yeah. I'm not taking you right for yeah. a reason um I think it's it's looking inside and say where are you in your life um and here's your goal I want you to look at this as a process yeah because if you look at it as a process I think you're going to reach your goal, so to speak, and allow yourself to kind of have a step backwards sometimes. Um, And I think that's important to communicate to clients, whether it's male or female, because a lot of people know what they feel inside their bodies, just don't realize how much the environment in their bodies affect. Like, so that's their environment, their physiology. Yeah. What you do, whether it's eating, um, or your workouts, or the other stressors in your life, it's going to affect, you know, how your physiology is inside your body will affect how your body responds to your food and workouts. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, because you don't, you know, a lot of people don't take in consideration what's going on in their lives. They're probably stressed at work, stressed out with family, and they want that hard workout because they know that's what gets results. Yes, it gets results. But let's titrate it a bit. Let's be that professional that says, okay, I'm just going to, you know, it's it's easy. It's easy to hammer out a person and work out. It's easy to make them like, oh, my God, that was like, I'm gassed. Yeah. But I think the tougher part is to recognize where they are in their life, where they are in their physiology. You're like, I know you want that. And maybe I'll give you that once a week because yeah. that's all you can do right now. Right. And then the other time we'll work on other stuff. I think that's important to kind of recognize um, an individual. Yeah, it's kind of like that discussion that you often have. Like, so I have this a lot with students. We talk about time management, but this is with a client talking about the physiological management, right? Like managing Mm -hmm. your physiology properly. And that's the same type of thing. Like if you're really, really busy, you don't have a lot of time adding another project to work when you don't have time to finish all the ones you have already wouldn't make sense. So let's Mm -hmm. either complete some of the other ones, delegate some of the other ones somewhere else, and then we can add something new in there. And Mm -hmm. I think it's the same thing with the physiology side of things as well, where if we're loaded up with stress, we're loaded up with uh, time commitments and while we know that it's something that gets results, it's, it actually adds a nether stress in two different ways from the time that it, commitment that it has, as well as the actual physical demand of being mm-hmm. going through it and having to recover from it. It just doesn't make sense for that client to then do that. So we've got to uh, be very mindful of that and, and organizing those things 
Uh, yeah, I agree. And I'm going to give you a personal um, kind of example. So my mother just passed away in June of uh, pancreatic cancer. So we right. found out. She was, yeah, well, thank you. Um, so it's been a process. So, you know, I'm a person who's been highly active and I understand physiology. So in March, she was it was battle for three years. And in March of you know 2020 is an awful year. We found out she was a stage four. And then so it progressed. And so my sisters and I took turns staying at her house. You're waking up every two hours, making sure she's got the medic pain medication she, she needs. And within even that last, you know, so even when you're not staying the night, you're waking up because you're kind of on high alert thinking you're still with her. Yeah. So like two weeks prior, I would, you know, we were, t we all spent the night there. We were waking up every two hours, make sure she had pain medication. And then she passed away and, you know, I was, I was trying to fit in my workouts. And I have to tell you, I am, you know, I have been pretty good about, I'm always really good about my diet and my diet didn't suffer during that. I probably was eating less because, you know, your people either eat more or eat less during their stress yeah. You would think I would lose weight or lose body fat. That was the time of the, that time I had the most waist circumference that I have ever had. Yeah. And I didn't beat myself up with it. Of course, I didn't feel good about myself, but I knew exactly what was happening to me. Yeah. I knew exactly. I'm waking up every two hours. You know, I'm stressed out because I'm wondering about what's going on with her. I'm like, I'm going to work out, but my workouts are going to be completely different. Yeah. Um, maybe I'll do one hard workout and then that's it. But then and even past her death, you still your body still follows suit until it eventually normalizes until you, you know, you finally get enough recovery and you sleep. So it's one of those things that as myself, I'm very in tune with my body. And as a professional in the, you know, health and fitness industry, I understand what's going on, but I think there are a lot of people who don't understand that and no fault of them. They're just not in that space. Right. Yeah. I think it's a lot of education on our part as professionals. So, Hey, you know, what is good? Let's, let's just see what's going on in your life. So that you can figure out what's going on in your body and let me let me get this program properly so it works for you and not against you right yeah. so yeah i like that um and, and yeah everybody's in a little bit of a different stage and sometimes with clients we don't like as, as a trainer or a strength and conditioning coach you don't want to dive too too deep into the mm -hmm. you know what's currently going on because you feel like it's almost maybe an invasion of privacy and i know yeah. for um, a lot of male trainers specifically who are working with female clients asking them about mm -hmm. their menstrual cycle feels oh, yeah. awkward it's something that's uh awkward for a lot of people to talk about with somebody specifically other than their spouse children it's, mm -hmm. it's it can be awkward for them um yeah. so i think that's a that's a big thing too is is getting past that and understanding the importance of it for your client's health and safety and mm -hmm. how your programming does and should be changing in response to um where they are at both uh, mentally physically and physiologically i think this is actually a a great place to pause mm -hmm. and um, end part one, and then we will come back and we will continue with part two. State of the Industry Podcast.